Bona tarda, senyores i senyors. Per mi és una satisfacció poder-los donar a tots la benvinguda a aquest acte en què tinc l'honor de presentar el professor Noam Chomsky, que durant aquesta setmana està ocupant la càtedra Ferrater Mora de la Universitat de Girona. Com a cada sessió de la càtedra, també en aquesta ocasió hem tingut especial interès que el professor convidat fes una lliçó oberta. En aquesta ocasió la lliçó oberta s'ha convertit en un esdeveniment perquè el professor Chomsky, com és sabut, té interessos molt més enllà dels seus interessos merament, diríem, acadèmics. Però abans de començar la presentació més formal voldria agrair, fer tres agraïments. El primer, el Centre Cultural La Mercè, que ens acull com sempre i que aquesta vegada s'ha esforçat en posar mitjans extraordinaris pel seguiment d'aquest acte. La segona paraula d'agraïment va dirigida a tots vostès, alguns dels quals han fet esforços considerables per poder trobar seient i que hauran de sofrir algunes incomoditats avui. Els entenc molt bé. És la primera vegada a la meva vida que intueixo que deu sentir un mànager d'una estrella del rock. I per tant, ho entenc tot. La paraula d'agraïment grossa i fonamental va dirigida al professor Chomsky, que fa realment un esforç, perquè té una agenda absolutament planíssima, fa un esforç per fer aquesta conferència d'avui i que a més es troba en condicions físiques no excel·lents, va arribar ja a fònic, ja hi va arribar, va arribar a fònic i costipat, però esclar, amb l'activitat que porta aquí, pobre, ha sigut difícil que millorés. A les acaballes del segle XX i a punt d'entrar en el tercer mil·leni de l'era cristiana, els ciutadans de l'Occident d'Europa i del Nord d'Amèrica som, sens dubte, dos grups humans que, quan examinem críticament la situació de la nostra cultura, tenim motius ben sobrats per la perplexitat i, fins i tot, per la inquietud i l'escàndol. Perquè si d'una banda les nostres societats destaquen pels seus avenços científico-tècnics, de l'altra també exhibeixen una extraordinària falta de sensibilitat social i moral. En són mostres evidents les enormes desigualtats econòmiques, les creixents bosses de pobresa, l'augment d'actituds racistes i xenòfobes, la repressió que experimenten moltes àrees de la vida privada o la sospita, sovint el rebuig, amb què es tracten les iniciatives que semblen radicals o que tenen caràcter alternatiu. Així doncs, la riquesa econòmica i cultural que en principi som capaços de generar no sembla pas que repercudeixi en una vida més lliure, més despreocupada i més creativa per la majoria dels ciutadans. La creixent uniformització dels afers públics internacionals, presentada com un nou ordre, tampoc no sembla pas encaminada a aconseguir que els nivells de riquesa i de benestar s'escampin pel món i arribin fins als més necessitats. Més aviat es pot pensar que el contrari. Els més pobres són els que hauran de continuar sofrint més fortament, en nom del progrés, les càrregues de la injustícia i de l'explotació. Ara bé, aquesta situació no és pas viscuda ni valorada igualment per part dels anomenats intel·lectuals. Recordem que en els països més rics actuen sempre com a intel·lectuals aquells que ja formen part de l'estructura del poder o almenys de les capes més benestants de la societat. 
em permetria assenyalar breument tres tipus d'intel·lectuals que es donen sovint entre nosaltres. En primer lloc, els intel·lectuals satisfets, fins i tot autosatisfets, que de manera impúdica i ideològica interpreten la marxa del món, o bé molt en abstracte, o bé segons interessos molt particulars. Aquests pensen, no sé si amb la mauvais foi que denunciava Sartre o amb un tergiversat optimisme leibnicià, o amb totes dues coses, que el món va molt millor del que havia anat mai. Un segon tipus d'intel·lectual és el de l'intel·lectual desconcertat, que ha perdut les, d'altra banda, falses seguretats que l'havien sostingut i que, incapaç de reaccionar, adopta la passivitat com a estil i espera temps millors, mentre accepta, ell pensa que, com a mal menor, el relativisme salvatge del tot si val. Aquests dos tipus d'intel·lectuals són exemples vivents i bastant tristos d'un pensament dèbil avant la letra. Sortosament, però, també hi ha un tercer tipus d'intel·lectual que no està satisfet ni desconcertat, sinó que està indignat i avergonyit. Noam Chomsky és un destacadíssim exemple d'aquest últim grup. El que em sembla, però, particularment remarcable de Chomsky com a intel·lectual no és només la seva decència moral, sinó, i abans que res, la seva decència intel·lectual. Aquella procedeix justament d'aquesta, ja que al capdavall les actituds morals també responen, encara que no només, a actituds intel·lectuals. En tota l'obra teòrica de Chomsky es pot respirar aquesta honestedat intel·lectual, tant en la seva claríssima visió dels límits de tota explicació científica, com en l'exercici constant de rigor en l'argumentació, o en la seva acceptació de la llibertat i de la indeterminació com a expressió i alhora com a font del misteri i de la creativitat. No és gens estrany, doncs, que l'obra de Chomsky interessi igualment a lingüistes, filòsofs, psicòlegs i científics cognitius. Afirmar, però, que Chomsky és un científic humanista és no dir ben bé la veritat. Sovint, l'humanisme ha estat cruel amb la natura i amb els humans concrets. Chomsky, tal com jo el veig, és un investigador no solament preocupat per entendre i per explicar, sinó també ocupat a assenyalar les múltiples possibilitats que la realitat ens amaga i que nosaltres mateixos amaguem a la realitat. És d'aquestes coses que avui ens ha vingut a parlar el professor Noam Chomsky amb una conferència sobre poder i democràcia. Ens sentim molt, molt honorats amb la seva presència i estem desitjosos de sentir les seves paraules. Gràcies a vostès també per la seva presència i per endavant moltes gràcies al professor Chomsky. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Uh, there's a general thesis about contemporary history that is widely and proudly proclaimed in the rich industrial societies of the West. It is that, the, that history is converging towards an ideal of a liberal democracy and free markets, which are the ultimate realization of uh, human freedom. 
And another part of the thesis is that we have just emerged from a cosmic struggle uh, in which the ideals of liberal democracy and classical markets uh, have been vindicated. The reality is uh, somewhat different. Uh, in the rich Western societies, at least, uh, there's one can make a strong argument that democracy and the free markets are probably declining uh, as power becomes more and more concentrated in the hands of privileged elites uh, who have always throughout history regarded freedom and democracy as a threat, uh, a danger that must be avoided, and have regarded markets as a device to control and subdue others uh, while uh, requiring that state power be used to maintain their own uh, wealth and privilege. And I think the West is moving more and more in that direction. As for the Cold War, it was real enough, but I think it should be understood in rather different terms. Uh, what I'd like to do is uh, say a few words about these topics. Well, first, uh, democracy. Uh, we have to decide what we mean by the word. Like most of the terms of political discourse, democracy has two meanings. One is its actual meaning, and one is the opposite. Uh, uh, the opposite is the one that's used for the pur purposes of uh, ideological control. In the uh, ordinary meaning, or ordinary person's meaning, uh, democracy, a system is democratic to the extent uh, that it provides opportunities for the general public to play a meaningful role in the management of public affairs. In the uh, sense of democracy that's used for doctrinal management, in contrast, a society is democratic to the extent that the business classes rule without any interference from the uh, troublesome rabble. Uh, I'm going to assume that we mean the first by democracy, and it's in that sense that it is regarded by, as a threat by elites and has always been. Uh, and that it is, in fact, in my opinion, declining. Uh, we can trace this problem back to the first uh, modern democratic revolutions, which took place in England in the uh, mid-17th century. Uh, as the usually suppressed and subdued rabble began to organize, began to publish pamphlets, uh, began to uh, appeal to, uh, to other poor people to take their lives into their hands, uh, those who described themselves as the men of best quality were appalled by this outrage uh, and insisted uh, eloquently that the rabble must be subdued, they must be obedient, they must respect their masters. And there was even a reason behind it, a kind of a logic behind it, a logic which persists up till today. The logic is that the mass of the population are stupid and ignorant they are what was called in those days beasts in the shape of men. Uh, to allow them any power or any influence would lead directly to disaster. And that's not entirely false. To allow the population any influence would lead to disaster uh, for those who concentrate power and privilege. Now, that's the real truth that lies behind the, uh, uh, the doctrinal uh, fantasies. Well, these ideas <clears throat> were quite, were prevailed, were prevalent among the intellectual classes in England, 
they continued right to the founding of uh, the United States, the first modern democracy, one may say. Uh, the founding fathers held that, as they put it, those who own the country ought to govern it. Uh, and the country should be managed by those who were described as men of virtue, uh, good old-fashioned Roman Republicans, aristocrats, uh, who could be counted on to manage the society properly in the interests of those who own it and therefore have the right to govern it. In the early stages, that meant aristocrats and landowners and so on. Later, it came to mean the uh, corporate elite in the industrial society that emerged in the next century. Uh, that uh, concept, we, there isn't much time to run through it, but it comes right up to the present, basically unchallenged. Uh, so in the present, it gets a little bit more sophisticated and so on, but it's basically the same idea. In the 20th century, uh, uh, the, the uh, noted, uh, one of the leading American intellectuals, Walter Lippmann, uh, who is the uh, leading figure in American journalism, the most respected commentator on public affairs, uh, and a major political commentator in his own right, uh, he, among other things, wrote essays that were called Progressive Essays in Democratic Theory in the 1920s. And he explained lucidly the form that a democracy should take in a modern industrial society. Uh, in, a in a modern democracy, he said, there are two classes of citizens. There are what he called the responsible men. Those are the men of virtue of the founding fathers. Uh, or the men of best quality of the 17th century. Uh, there are the responsible men who are a very small group. And of course, anyone who presents these ideas is always part of that group, by definition. Uh, so there's the responsible men who have the duty of managing and controlling the society. And then there's the general public, uh, whom he described <clears throat> in his words as a bewildered herd. Uh, and the responsible men have to protect themselves uh, from the trampling and the rage of the bewildered herd. That's a problem. Uh, these two classes of citizens have two different functions, he said, in a democracy. Uh, the responsible men, of course, have the function of running it. The, uh, since it's a democracy and not a totalitarian state, the bewildered herd also have a function. Uh, their function is to be spectators, not participants in action, but they're given a certain role. Periodically, they are allowed to lend their weight to one or another member of the responsible class. That's what's called an election. After that, they're supposed to go home and be quiet. Now, uh, this uh, doctrine was extended by academic, uh, leading academic political scientists and many others, and the general idea was, uh, as one of the leading American political scientists, uh, Harold Laswell, put it, one of the founders of modern political science, uh, that we should not succumb to democratic dogmatisms about men being the best judges of their own interests. They are not. We are the best judges of their interests if we allow them any opportunity to uh, uh, influence affairs. It'll just be a catastrophe. Uh, he also noticed something which, in fact, you can trace back centuries, that as a society becomes more free, typically through popular struggle, which expands the range of freedom, 
it becomes harder to control the rabble by force, and therefore it is necessary to rely more and more on propaganda. Uh, and in a very free country like the United States, it is necessary to rely extensively on propaganda. That idea had already been learned by the highly class-conscious business classes decades earlier. Come back to that in a moment. Uh, moving up towards the present, uh, in the 1960s, the rabble all over the Western world uh, became, uh, got out of control, began to enter into the political arena. All sorts of groups that are normally passive and apathetic and obedient and serve the masters uh, began to raise their voices, to organize, to put forth demands uh, uh, in the political arena and to act to uh, implement them. Uh, that called forth an extremely interesting study, study uh, done by the Trilateral Commission, uh, which was put together in 1973 by David Rockefeller. Uh, it was a trilateral commission because it was recognizing the new political economic reality of the world, namely that there are three major uh, power centers. U.S. hegemony had dissolved to a certain extent by that point. So the Trilateral Commission is a rep represents elite groups, uh, intellectuals, corporate leaders, uh, others, from the three major centers, Europe, uh, the United States, and Japan. Uh, I should mention that they represent the liberal side, the soft humanitarian liberal side of the elites. This is the group, for example, out of which Jimmy Carter uh, and his administration came. That's the complexion. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, re reacting to the uprising of the rabble in the 1960s, uh, they called a meeting and published a book uh, called The Crisis of Democracy. And in the book, the representatives of Japan, the United States, and Europe uh, described the crisis, this fact that normally marginalized people, youth, uh, women, uh, minorities, all sorts of others, are becoming, are trying to assert their rights and organize to obtain them. Uh, they described this, and that's the crisis of democracy. Now, the naive might believe that that's democracy, but that's only if they're using the term democracy in its actual meaning. If we use the term in its uh, ideologically correct meaning, it's a threat to democracy because it's a threat to unquestioned business rule. And it was recognized by the commission as a threat a threat that had to be overcome. The crisis of democracy had to be overcome. Uh, they urged various methods uh, to impose, <clears throat> as they put it, more moderation in democracy, uh, meaning these uh, groups that were attempting to put forth their interests in the public arena should return to their traditional passivity and obedience because that would enable democracy to survive which again is correct in, their, in the elite sense of democracy. Well, that carries us pretty much up to the present and we could carry it up to the present day. This is a major current, probably the dominant current in intellectual thought with regard to democracy. Uh, and I should say that all through I've been sampling from the liberal extreme, uh, people like Lippmann and Laswell and Trilateral Commission all the way back. Now, there is indeed a spectrum of opinion on this. Uh, on the one hand, you have <clears throat> a libertarian current that can be traced back, say, to John Locke, 
uh, and that would in fact include those who I had uh, just described, uh, their position was that the rabble should be permitted to know what is happening in the government. They should be permitted to have information about public affairs, but they must be spectators. They must not participate. In fact, in the case of John Locke, uh, in college, one reads his libertarian philosophical essays, but if you want to understand his actual thought, uh, you have to remember that apart from on the side writing philosophy, he also had a job. Uh, his job was as a colonial civil servant, and in that capacity, he wrote, he devised the constitutions for several of the colonies, uh, and especially the Carolinas, uh, and he uh, imposed in those constitutions his beliefs as to what role the rabble should play in a democracy. Being a libertarian, he held that they were allowed to know what's going on, but they're not allowed to talk about it. It was a crime to discuss public affairs, certainly not to do anything about it. Well, that's the libertarian side. Uh, comes pretty much up to the present. There's also a more authoritarian side. Also goes way back uh, without tracing it back in history. Uh, in the modern period, contemporary period, a good example of the more authoritarian side of the spectrum is the group that are called by a remarkable or Orwellian inversion of language are called conservatives today. Any genuine conservative would turn over his grave to hear the term used <clears throat> for people like those around Ronald Reagan, radical statists uh, who believe in a very powerful state that intrudes massively into economic affairs and public affairs, throws its weight around violently all over the world, uh, and is uh, carefully uh, protected from any interference by the rabble. So that, uh, this is the authoritarian extreme. Uh, the uh, Reagan administration uh, in keeping with its commitments, its deeply anti-democratic commitments, uh, created the largest illegal, of course, government propaganda agency in American history. There have been others, but this was new in scale. Its main, its main purpose was, as they put it, to try to demonize the Sandinistas, uh, to build up public support for the U.S. war against Nicaragua, which was lagging, and other similar things. When the uh, operation was exposed, as it finally was, uh, and it, of course declared illegal. Uh, the, uh, uh, one of the high officials of the Reagan administration told the press that the kinds of operations that were being carried out are those that one carries out in enemy territory, which is quite exact. The general population is enemy territory, and since unfortunately you can't control them by violence, uh, we need propaganda agencies. Uh, the uh, Reaganites also, as you know, uh, broke new records in clandestine acti activities, clandestine secret terrorist activities. Uh, the U.S. has always been involved in international terrorism massively, but they broke some new records. Uh, they were carrying out very complex clandestine operations. Uh, there are other states that are terrorist, but they're usually small players. So Libya, say, may hire some terrorists to do some job for them. But the United States is a big country. When the United States gets into terrorism, it doesn't hire particular assassins. It hires terrorist states. So for example, it hires uh, Belgium to provide arms. Uh, it hires Saudi Arabia to fund it. 
it hires Israel to organize the, and train the killers and so on. It, orders, it brings in Taiwan uh, to train assassins. And in fact, an enormous network of terrorist states was established, something quite new in scale, although not all that different in specific character. And all of this was kept secret. It was crucial that it be kept secret. And it's important to bear in mind that point, which is perhaps obvious, uh, that a government engages in clandestine activities only if it's afraid of its own population. Clandestine activities are not secret from anyone else. They're certainly not secret from the victims. They're not secret from the array of terrorist states that are participating. In fact, they're not even secret from the media. It's just that they're at a low enough level so that the media and the intellectuals can pretend that they don't see it. And what's called exposure of these clandestine activities is when it breaks through to a level <clears throat> where you can no longer pretend uh, that you don't know what you always knew. Uh, that, and then you go through a certain routine to sort of cleanse yourself, confession, I suppose. Uh, well, the, 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 Reagan, the fact that the Reagan administration broke new records in clandestine terror is another measure of its fear of enemy territory, the population at home, and their commitment to ensure that the state uh, to which they're deeply committed uh, be insulated not only from uh, any influence by the rabble, but even from awareness by the rabble. See, they don't accept the position of, say, Locke, that the public are allowed to know what's happening. Uh, the Reagan administration, all, there are various procedures that every government uses uh, to release secret documents from some suitably distant past, uh, which enables the population to know what was happening to them, you know, 50 years ago or something like that. That's called democratic freedom. And states vary on this. The United States is one of the more open, in fact. It's usually about a 30 or 35 year period, and there's a fair amount of documentation released. Uh, the Reagan administration tried to stop that. They imposed very harsh conditions on release of documents from 30 or 40 years ago uh, on the principle that the population of enemy territory has no right to know what the state was up to 40 years ago or 30 years ago, uh, certainly not today. Uh, in fact, these constraints were so heavy that the entire uh, historical section of the State Department resigned in pro public protest. These are very conservative people, I should say, the State Department historians. But they were appalled at the level of censorship that was being imposed. They simply couldn't do their professional job. And there were many other such examples. Well, that makes sense. Uh, and it, in my opinion, we are, in fact, moving towards the authoritarian end of this rather narrow spectrum. Uh, there's an international variant of this. I've been talking about domestic society. The international variant, <clears throat> uh, well, it was presented rather lucidly by Winston Churchill in 1945 when plans were being made to run the world. This is about running countries. We're now talking about running the world. Uh, and he explained that the government of the world must be entrusted to the satisfied nations, to rich men dwelling in peace in their habitations, their rather ample habitations, they might say. Uh, our power placed us above the rest, he said. Therefore, we rule, they serve. Uh, that's the basis of what's called world order. Uh, uh, one of the euphemisms for this is the North-South confrontation. Uh, 
goes right back to the beginning of the Colombian era, even before. Uh, at home, the same thing. The rich men rule, uh, others obey. Now you take these two principles and put them together, and you have a logical consequence, namely, the rich men of the world rule the world. Uh, the service areas, so-called South, uh, obey, and most of the population at home obey. That's world order on both an international and domestic scale, as perceived by those officially committed to democracy. Now, there are differences in the means for imposing order, as Laswell and others had noticed. In military states and totalitarian states, you don't really have to worry much about the rabble. They get out of line, you send them down to the torture chamber in you know, central Madrid or whatever it was. Uh, in, uh, uh, so, for example, in El Salvador, if, you, if union, union organizers or troublesome priests or uh, peasant, uh, you know, peasant activists are getting out of line, you just send the death squads. They kill them off. It takes care of that. Uh, in the United States or any of the more free societies where people have over centuries won a certain amount of protection from state violence, uh, it's harder to do this. It's much harder to do it. And therefore, you have to turn to more subtle means, exactly as was pointed out by the theorists of this process long ago. Uh, the primary means that's used is thought control. Obvious, if you can't control people by force, you have to control their opinions, you have to control what they think. Uh, that was recognized, as I mentioned, by the US corporate elite back in the early part of this century. There are a number of respects in which the United States is an unusual country in the world. One of them is that it has a highly class-conscious business class. They're all vulgar Marxists, incidentally. If you read the business literature, it reads like little Maoist texts, except all the values are reversed, of course. Uh, so early in the century, it was recognized by uh, the corporate elite that the rising political power of the masses uh, posed a threat the greatest threat to corporate power, and therefore it was necessary to do something about it. Can't kill them, I've lost that capacity. Uh, so therefore it was necessary, as they put it, uh, to control the public mind, which is the greatest threat to the corporations. And a huge industry was formed called the public relations industry, which is dedicated to controlling the public mind. Later on, Europe and Japan, more backward societies, uh, picked it up and now have similar things, pioneered in the United States. Uh, the public relations industry spends huge sums of money. Nobody knows because, remember, the corporate world is secret. But few congressional attempts to investigate some years ago came up with figures on the order of a billion dollars a year, which is probably much higher today. This was in the 1970s, to control the public mind. That's a lot of money, a lot of effort. It ranges over a whole wide uh, spectrum of uh, 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 available me means of uh, communication and indoctrination uh, in the modern period. One of the major ones is television, uh, which presents a picture of life as it should be lived from the point of view of the rulers. Each individual should be a, a happy consumer, consuming as much as possible. No, nobody works, you know, nobody has a job, nobody uh, uh, has a struggle on the job. Um, you have some personal problems, may, may, but they get overcome by the end of the program. Uh, and uh, of course, it's all interspersed with lots and lots of advertisements. 
uh, which try to convince you, especially try to convince young people, uh, that they better spend every cent they have on buying $200 sneakers and whatever the next thing is, because that's the way life is supposed to be lived. This incidentally has quite an impact on the poor black ghettos uh, where kids are watching this stuff and haven't got a cent, uh, but they see their favorite basketball player appearing in um, all of this fancy gear and they want to be like him, uh, so they have to get it. And there's only one way to get it, which is part of the reason for the, uh, it certainly has an impact, it's hard to measure on the ghetto criminality, on the drug trade and so on. Uh, well, that's one aspect. Another aspect of the prop thought system of thought control is simply diversion. Get the rabble out of our hair. Just get them to pay attention to something else, not public affairs, which are none of their business. So get them to watch sports or you know, sex or violence or something, anything but something that might, that they might, that might help them to take part in managing their lives, because that's not allowed in a democracy. Uh, the, uh, there's also straight indoctrination, you know, presenting a picture of the world uh, that suits the ideology. That's usually beamed at the educated classes. They're the ones who have to make decisions uh, which may influence something. They're the managers, you know, corporate managers, uh, uh, cultural managers, uh, political managers, and so on. They have a certain range of, in which they can move, so they, better, they really better believe the right things. Uh, and hence the major careful propaganda in a sort of a narrow sense is directed at the educated classes. And it's rather striking to see the effects. There's quite significant differences of opinion and knowledge uh, between the rabble who just figure things out by their own instinct because they're being diverted and the educated classes who are being subjected to extensive indoctrination and of course have an internal reason to believe it. They have to fulfill their function. Uh, just to give you one case, there's lots more. Uh, just before I left the United States, a, an academic study was published of opinion uh, right before the presidential election to see you know, what people believed about it, uh, what people believed about the positions, the candidates, and so on. Not surprisingly, very few people knew the positions on the candidates. Uh, when asked, uh, although 86% knew the name of George Bush's dog, you know, less than 30% knew where the candidates stood on public issues, uh, the propaganda was kind of getting through in some sense. So you know, they, they gave the kinds of answers which reflected the propaganda messages so, for example, when asked, the, the biggest item in the federal budget by far is military spending. Uh, the next, uh, way down below that, is anything that could loosely be called welfare. Uh, at the very bottom, undetectable, you know, you can't find it with a microscope, is so-called foreign aid, which is really a kind of export promotion. Uh, but the public inverts those figures. Uh, most of the people, most of the people, when, it, when given those three choices, thought that foreign aid was the biggest item in the federal budget because uh, uh, we're giving away everything to all those third world malcontents. Uh, the uh, next biggest item they thought was uh, welfare, you know, purchasing Cadillacs for welfare mothers and that sort of thing. And uh, quite low down uh, came uh, 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 military spending. Uh, there were a lot of other results like that. But one interesting result was they, these, 
people who did the study correlated the responses with level of education. And it turned out the higher the level of education, the greater the ignorance about the facts. That's not particularly surprising. In fact, it's kind of reasonable, and there's a lot of similar results in other studies, uh, because the rabble are just being ignored, and their own experiences tell them what the world is really like. You know? Whereas the educated have to be trained to be commissars, so they are indoctrinated, and therefore quite commonly have uh, false pictures of the world, thanks to the effects of the educational system and the journals and so on and so forth, the instruments of ideological management. Uh, well, that's one mechanism of control, controlling the public mind, what you might call propaganda. Uh, a second method of control is simply to isolate people, keep them be alone, uh, make sure uh, that there are no organizations in which they can come together. If people are alone, if poor people, powerless people, are fighting concentrated power alone, they're helpless. You can't know what you think, you know, you can't have ideas, you can't interchange them, you can't have plans, you can't do anything about them. So it's very important to break down organizations and isolate people. Uh, there's an old, uh, it's called in the United States Wobblies, the anarchist labor movement back in the 1920s. An old uh, Wobbly organizer, uh, one of his favorite slogans was, uh, he told him he'd run around giving talks and singing songs and so on. He said, the press has told us how good the times are. We have no opportunity to consult our neighbors to see if the press speaks the truth. Well, that's the crucial point. Uh, if people can consult their neighbors, they get to be dangerous. As long as the press is telling them one at a time what the story is, uh, things are pretty safe. Uh, and the, the masters understand that as well as anyone else. Uh, television has had a substantial effect on this. Television's in inherently an isolating device. I mean, unless you're going to a bar to watch a boxing match or something, uh, you sit alone in front of the television set uh, and your neighbor sits alone in front of his or her television set. And in fact, in a country like the United States where there's, you know, te television sets in every room, uh, every member of the family sits alone in front of the television set. And that way people are really isolated. The chance that they'll consult their neighbors is very low. Uh, there have also been huge efforts, including enormous corporate propaganda campaigns to break unions. That uh, the, the corporate world was terrified in 1935 when labor, labor won its first legislative victory uh, ever. Namely, it gained the right to organize. Actually, U.S. labor has, been, has a very violent history of repression, and American workers didn't get the minimal right to organize until 50 or 60 years after it was common in, uh, in Europe. Even the right-wing European press, like the London Times, was constantly appalled at the treatment of uh, workers in the United States. But in 1935, in the course of the big popular struggles and uprising then, uh, they did gain the right to organize. That's the first and last victory for labor in the legislative system. The business community organized at once, again warned about you know the rising political power of the masses and got to do something about this, and launched huge new campaigns. Uh, they realized it was too late to do 
to rely on the traditional method of strike breaking, just state violence, which is the traditional method. They had to have more sophisticated means, uh, what were called scientific methods of strike breaking, involving largely uh, attempts to, to organize opinion in the communities against the strikers. The typical picture was, uh, and communities were just deluged with this material, the picture was uh, all of us are good Americans living in harmony, you know, working together for the common good. The honest laborer, you know, the simple housewife, the executive in the corporate suite, you know, toiling for the benefit of the people. Uh, and then there are these disruptive elements, aliens of some kind, who are trying to destroy our harmony. Uh, and this was done with great energy and sophistication. The acts were, the efforts were kind of put on hold during the Second World War. There were some other things to do, but it picked up right away afterwards and without going through the details, the right to organize has been lost. Uh, labor won the eight-hour day finally in 1935. It's lost it completely. Uh, if people are lucky enough to have a job, they're forced to work a lot of overtime. Uh, the, uh, the, the right or the, the ultimate weapon of strike breaking, namely bringing in uh, scabs, and what you call that, uh, you know, replacement workers, non-union replacement workers. The corporations were afraid to do that for years. They're doing it now. It was done in, to break a big union this year, uh, a big strike by the United Auto Workers, and most corporations now say they'll do the same thing. That's a great success in destroying democracy. Uh, well, that's another technique. Uh, and of course, this means try to break down all popular organizations as well. Uh, uh, notice that if this succeeds, if you succeed in isolating people sufficiently, it really doesn't matter what they think. That is, each person can privately have his or, own, or her own thoughts in their own living room, uh, and it has no effect on anything. And that does yield very striking results. So, for example, throughout the Reagan years, which were regarded as a triumphant period for you know, right-wing conservatism, what in fact was happening was that public opinion was steadily moving towards more social democratic, New Deal-style positions, although nobody was advocating. In fact, everybody was on the other side. So each person was doing it alone. Uh, things have now reached the point where in the latest, the United States is very heavily polled because the public relations industry, which has to control the public mind, wants to know what's happening in the public mind. So there's huge efforts to figure out what's in people's minds. Uh, and they're interesting to study. Uh, the most recent, one of the most recent ones <clears throat> found that 83% of the population regard the economic system as inherently unfair can't be remedied, has to be overthrown. Uh, about 70, one of, one of the big issues arising in the United States now is health care, uh, which is you know, not available to most many people and out of sight for those who can get it in cost. Uh, about 70% of the population are in favor of what's called a Canadian-style health care system, more or less the kind of health care system that exists in every industrial country except the United States and South Africa, I think. Uh, now, they've never heard this advocated. You know, when there's any reference to it, it's called a Soviet-style system of repression or something like that. 
Uh, and in fact, it's not an option. I mean, it, it doesn't come up in the political campaign, and it can't happen, because the health system has to be designed so that it benefits uh, private insurance corporations. Uh, so it's not an option, but uh, that's what 70% of the people think anyway. Well, as long, and we could go on and on. It's, let's just take a last example. There was a recent poll uh, in which uh, the popularity of living ex-presidents was determined. Who was the most popular living ex-president? Well, by far the most popular was Jimmy Carter. Second was Gerald Ford. And the only reason he was second is nobody knows who he is. You know, he was president for a couple of months and nobody remembers him, so he must have been pretty good. And down at the bottom, way down at the bottom, were Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. Uh, among working people, Reagan was the most unpopular among all public figures who they gave in the poll. Now remember, this is, you've been hearing years about the great popularity, the great communicator, and this and that, all total fraud, you know. But as long as the general population is isolated, it really doesn't matter. Nobody knows that anyone else has the same opinions they have, uh, and if the, even if they did, they couldn't do anything about it. Now that's the beauty of isolation. Uh, another technique, which is actually just being sort of pioneered now and extends to Europe as well, as do all of these things. Incidentally, Europe kind of lags a generation behind, usually, in these respects. Uh, the, uh, uh, so you can probably get a picture of the future by looking at what's happening to the United States. Uh, another method of marginalizing the public and making sure that they just stay spectators, not participants, is to take decision-making out of the public domain entirely. Then there's no, there can't be any problems. Well, that's done very widely. So for example, take, say, corporations or banks. Those are totalitarian structures, pure totalitarian structures. What goes on internal to them is never anybody's business. I remember once at a conference I happened to run in Switzerland, I happened to run into uh, uh, on that same panel I was on, a diplomatic historian from Switzerland. Uh, we got friendly and talked for a while. And he told me the worst job in the world is to be a diplomatic historian in Switzerland. The reason is that diplomatic historians, what they do is uh, look at government documents, you know, of course from the distant past, and they try to figure out what happened in the past on the basis of documents. But in Switzerland, he said, they've, they've dropped the pretense that there's a government in between the corporations and the banks and policy. It's all done by the governments and the bank, by the corporations and the banks directly. And they don't leave a record because nobody finds out what they're thinking about. And the government's just kind of a, like a low-level administrating device. Well, that's a, kind of like a step forward. Uh, but within the corporations, and this becomes hugely significant in an era of uh, globalization of capital, huge transnational corporations and banks, internal to them, everything is totally secret and completely totalitarian in decision-making structure. Orders come from the top, they flow down. Nobody, even in principle, has uh, the possibility of influencing anything. Uh, you have a choice of renting yourself to them or starving in the streets, so that's a choice, but that's about it. Uh, a second type of, and that's always been true, of course, but it's very much expanding in, in, in scale in the modern period. In fact, uh, just to give you a measure of how much it's expanding in scale, 
uh, international trade, what's called international trade, probably close to half of it, or you know, somewhere between a third and a half of it, is probably intra-firm transfers, just movement of goods inside a particular firm. In the United States, about where there's good statistics, about 10 years ago, 40% of what's called international trade was just internal to a particular firm. That means centrally managed trade. Centrally managed trade, absolutely insulated from any market pressures, and of course, uh, you know, unknown to anyone, just as the decisions are. A second development that's happening now is the rise of a kind of de facto world government, which is reflecting the globalization of the economy. There's been a big escalation in the last 20 years in uh, uh, the flow of cap the free flow of capital, tons of unregulated capital in the world. Uh, people can invest very quickly and very easily elsewhere. One effect is the deindustrialization of the industrial societies. It's uh, an obvious effect uh, because capital is going to move to high repression, low wage areas if it can move freely, since that's profitable. Uh, and in fact, uh, with this increase in transnational corporations, supranational banks, and investment firms with huge amounts of capital to throw around, they, have naturally, they are naturally creating a world government to reflect that structure. Typically, governments reflect prevailing domestic economic power. Now it's on a world scale, so it's a world government. And it includes its own institutions like the GATT, or the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, uh, the meetings of the seven rich executives of the seven richest industrial countries, G7. In fact, it's described in the international financial press as the new imperial age with a de facto world government controlling everything. Well, of course, one of the uh, in the European community, the term democratic deficit is sometimes used to reflect the fact that decisions are being raised to a level where they're out of the influence of any parliamentary bodies. Uh, whatever, to whatever extent parliamentary bodies reflect public opinion, uh, they can no longer do it if the decisions are at the level of the IMF and the GATT negotiations. That's called the democratic deficit, and the idea is to try to maximize the deficit, you know, make it as big as possible. Notice that that gives you a new form of control of the public. Decisions are being made at a level uh, where they cannot influence them through any form of representative institution, and in fact where they don't even know about them. You know, who knows what's going on inside the IMF or you know, in the GATT negotiations? People may think they know, but they really don't. If you look closely, what's going on is something quite different. And decisions made at that level have an overwhelming influence on every aspect of life, on, on investment, trade, uh, environment, uh, everything you can think of, and it's out of the control of governments, of populations. In the United States, a similar thing is happening right now with the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, which is an executive agreement that the public doesn't even know about. Actually, it's being kept secret. And Congress has abdicated any responsibility, so it'll just sail through. Uh, Labor's screaming about it, but nobody pays any attention to them. Uh, in fact, uh, any more than you pay attention to the third world, uh, so it'll be rammed through. It'll obviously be a bonanza, even without knowing what's in it, and you can't really know. Uh, it's plain that it'll be uh, a great bonanza for investors. They'll make a lot of money out of it, 
both the U.S. investors and their Mexican counterparts. It will probably be a disaster for the working class, both in the United States and in Mexico. And it may very well uh, severely degrade environmental restrictions, uh, pesticide control, and so on. In other words, it'll have the intended purpose of lowering the level of life for everybody but the very rich to the lowest possible level and marginalizing the public. Well, these are tendencies that are quite, uh, quite obvious and will continue. Uh, that's democracy. With regard to liberal capitalism, uh, it's getting late, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, but the fact is that all the talk about liberal capitalism and markets is just dreamy fantasies. If you look back at economic history, there's some very clear lessons. Every successful developing country, without exception, from England up to South Korea, has gotten that way by violating these principles, radically violating. It's not even questionable. Every country that's followed these principles is a complete disaster. In fact, the only place where they're followed is the third world. In fact, they're designed for the third world to make it easier to rob people. If a country follows these free market principles, it'll be robbed blind, which is exactly why every developed society, starting with England, uh, has uh, destroyed its competitors by force, like as England destroyed Indian, Indian textile manufacturer was out, was out producing it, uh, has set up high protectionist walls, has relied on import substitution, and so on and so forth. And so it goes up to the present. The United States is a perfect example. Uh, the United U.S. industrialization started with, it, with textiles, like everybody. And the only reason you could have textiles in New England in the 1830s, let's say, is because British manufacturers were kept out. They would have undercut it. Some estimates are that about 50% of American manufacturing would have been destroyed right away if they'd let the protectionist walls down. Same was true of the steel industry. Coming up to the present, the same is true of the computer industry. Uh, the computer industry is called a private enterprise, but that's a total fraud. Uh, the computer industry is largely funded by the public. That's part of the main purpose of the Pentagon. The whole Pentagon system is to cha channel public subsidies to high technology industry. And everyone in the industry knows perfectly well that without that subsidy, they'd be nowhere. That's one of the reasons they're so upset now, because of the loss of the traditional pretext for organizing a public subsidy to uh, advanced sectors of industry. Uh, just the other day, uh, there was a big article in the Wall Street Journal about how the American computer chip industry had sort of come back into international competition thanks to the fact that the government set up a government corporate corporation which subsidized them and so on. And to my knowledge, there are no, except, there are no exceptions to this. Uh, and everyone very well understands it. The idea that capitalism might be a viable system disappeared about 60 years ago. Uh, and it, now it exists only in the ideological system or in the stuff that's produced for third world people who you want to rob and destroy. Uh, so much for, and in fact, as international trade becomes more and more controlled by huge corporations, as the share in international trade by centrally managed corporations increases, obviously markets decline. I mean, even if the, you know, the, the classical economic theory holds that there's a free market sea and then there are little tiny islands in it, which are called businesses, firms, 
I mean, everybody always understood that a firm is centrally managed. There's no free trade inside a, a business. Oh, by now, the islands are the size of the sea, and the sea was never a free trade sea anyway. Uh, of the 24 most industrial countries, 20 are more protectionist now than they were 30 years ago. That's one of the main reasons why the gap between the third world and the first world is increasing. The other major reason is that the third world has been sub subjected to what's called IMF fundamentalism, neoliberal economic policies, which has, of course, destroyed them. Uh, you have more protectionism among the rich, more free market liberalism among the poor, and predictably, you get a growing gap. And, and now, the, uh, as Eastern Europe returns to its classical third world role, it's happening to them as well. Uh, well, let me finally make a remark about, uh, about the Cold War, the role of Eastern Europe and all of this. Uh, it's important, but I think it's misconceived. In, in my opinion, the Cold War was essentially a phase in the North-South conflict. And let me briefly explain why I think that's the way to understand it. Uh, the North, what's called the North-South conflict, it's a euphemism for Europe's conquest of the world, uh, sets up rich, powerful industrial societies which rob everybody else, uh, and then the third world, which is a service area, provides resources, raw materials, cheap labor, uh, markets, investment opportunities. In the current period, uh, opportunities for exploit, export of pollution, all kind of services like that. Now, uh, there's, a, there's a constant threat to this system. It's, if, uh, if you look at the internal US planning doc documents, it's identified very clearly. The greatest threat, the US was the global enforcer in the post-Second World War period, so the, document, the planners took a global view. And they said the greatest threat to US interests is uh, radical and nationalist regimes in the third world, uh, which will be subject to pressures from the masses of the population for improved living standards and diversification of production for domestic needs. In other words, any form of government in the third world which is responsive to its own public is a threat to our interests because, of course, that means they're not responsive to the higher value, our interests. And this is explained, as in the business press, in vul ordinary vulgar Marxist terms. Uh, namely, we have to pr maintain a healthy investment climate uh, with, uh, with uh, adequate repatriation for investors. And that's all going to be threatened if governments start responding to pressures from their own populations or begin to produce for domestic needs and so on. So that's the big threat. And it has to be killed, of course. You can't permit that threat to exist. Uh, the threat becomes amplified if a country moves on an independent course uh, and actually shows some signs of success. Then it becomes what's called a rotten apple that might spoil the barrel or a virus that might infect others. So Allende's Chile, for example, was described as a virus that might infect others all the way to Italy. Not, not that anybody expects Kissinger, who said this, not that he expected you know, Allende's hordes to descend upon Rome, obviously. I don't think he was that stupid, uh, though I'm not sure to tell you the truth. Uh, but uh, uh, he did, they did expect that it would send the wrong message to Italian voters, namely that 
social democratic reforms could be instituted through parliamentary means. And that's a virus that might infect others. Nicaragua was a virus, uh, Vietnam was a virus, and, you know, they all have to be destroyed. When you have a virus, things get serious. You've got to destroy it, and you've got to inoculate everybody around it. So typically when there's a virus, you get a destruction of the threat and imposition of terror states in the environment. That's been a characteristic pattern. The neo-Nazi national security states in Latin America that spread from the Kennedy administration on uh, were an effort to respond to the Cuban virus. You had to inoculate the region. Same was true in uh, Southeast Asia. This is a very standard pattern. Uh, well, let's take a look. And that, that's basically the logic of the Cold War. There's a lot more to it. Uh, well, uh, if you t let's take the Cold, the cold uh, the, of the North-South conflict, sorry. Let's take the Cold War now. Uh, it's important to bear in mind that Eastern Europe is the earliest third world. Actually, even before the Columbian era, Eastern Europe was beginning to underdevelop and become a service area for the slowly developing West. Now, those relations intensified. Actually, the split was right down the center of Germany, not very distant from where East and West Germany divide today. To the east, it was becoming underdeveloped, impoverished, serfdom was increasing, and so on. To the west, it was developing. The interactions both reflected that and accelerated it uh, in the standard pattern. And, by, and this continued. It intensified right into the 20th century uh, with your eastern, most, you know, not every place, like not the western part of Czechoslovakia, but most of Eastern Europe uh, became an impoverished colony of the West uh, in the classic sense. Okay, in 1917, an ultranationalist threat developed. A big piece of the third world pulled itself out. Now, this isn't Grenada or Nicaragua. This is a sixth of the world pulling itself out of its service role. That is really intolerable. Uh, and in fact, there was an immediate invasion, and the invasion was taken very seriously. Uh, one of the facts that's constantly suppressed in British scholarship, which has been known for at least 10 years from declassified documents, is that the British military successes on the Northern Front were largely due to the use of poison gas. Now, poison gas in those days was like nuclear weapons today. Uh, <clears throat> But, and it was, the intervention was taken extremely seriously, didn't quite work, although it did carry out a lot of destruction and so on. Uh, in later period, uh, this independent piece of the third world was not only separated from the service role, but was becoming a virus. There was great fear that elsewhere in the third world, people would want to follow that model, especially during the Great Depression, uh, when the Western countries were serious problems and Russian economic development at least was continuing. This goes right into the post-war period. In fact, they were afraid that the virus might even spread to the West. Uh, part of the reason for the Western initiatives to partition Germany uh, from 1945 on uh, were, as the British Foreign Office put it, to block uh, ideological infiltration from the East, which amounts to aggression. Uh, political victories by the wrong people are commonly described as aggression. But they were afraid that the influences from the East might lead to a unified labor movement and, you know, interfere with the project of restoring Europe to traditional conservative rule that was going on at the time.
Uh, and this goes on for years. It's kind of hard to remember now. But uh, Soviet success was considered a great threat because it was a virus. Others thought, why not us? Uh, you might think, and, and hence that led to the second stage of the Cold War from 1945 on. At that point, the virus was not only infecting others, but it had even become a major military force, which had a deterrent effect on the West, made it harder to intervene elsewhere. So it was, you know, that's something that no third world country can do. And of course, by then it had expanded to Eastern Europe, which is a traditional source of resources and raw materials for Western Europe. Uh, that meant the cutoff of the flow of you know, uh, food supplies and other raw materials that Europe was used to exploiting. Uh, well, uh, uh, it's, wor it's important to stress that Stalin's crimes were of absolutely no concern to anybody. If you read the planning record, they don't even talk about them. Uh, Harry Truman, and of course the crimes were awesome in scale. Uh, Truman, President Truman, uh, said that he liked Stalin, you know. He thought he was honest and very clever. It would be a catastrophe if he died. Uh, but there was a condition. The condition was, we have to, he said we can make a deal with him, but on one condition, that we get our way 85% of the time. In that case, we can make a deal. Otherwise, no deal. Well, they couldn't get their way 85% of the time. Uh, on goes the Cold War. I won't go through the details. Uh, the Soviet Union, though always far behind the West in both economic and military power, its power peaked around 1960. By the mid-1960s, internal indicators were declining. Things like health and you know, standard indicators of what's happening in a society were beginning to decline. By the 1970s, military spending leveled off. By the 80s, the whole thing imploded, collapsed. Uh, though they had carried the society, this, the tyranny was brutal tyranny, and it had carried the society through the early stages of industrialization, couldn't go on to the modern period. Uh, it's called a disaster, but that, uh, but that depends what you compare it with. In the West, the standard, is, standard uh, uh, procedure is to compare Eastern and Western Europe and say, oh God, look how awful they are and how wonderful we are. We must be terrific people. Uh, Eastern and Western, that's an idiotic comparison. I mean, Eastern and Western Europe haven't been alike for probably 600 years, and they were falling farther apart uh, in the early part of the century. People in the third world who aren't forced to be as stupid as we are make a different comparison. They compare, they make a rational comparison. They compare countries that were alike in the early part of the century. You know, no perfect examples, but they might say compare Brazil and Russia or Guatemala and uh, you know, Bulgaria or something like that. If you, draw the, if you look at those comparisons, you get quite a different picture. Uh, in any event, by the 1980s, the system couldn't maintain itself, couldn't control dissent, fell apart. Uh, and predictably, Eastern Europe finally returns to its third world role. Um, the logic is exactly the same as when the Marines conquered Grenada. But you know, Grenada is a speck in the Caribbean. You can knock it off in a weekend. Uh, Russia is, big, you know, even in, in the third world period, it was a big military force. And it takes, takes 70 years. Uh, but the logic is about the same. Uh, the uh, return of Eastern Europe to the third world role offers new opportunities for repressing people in the West in the traditional fashion. So one of the ways in which you 
if you're an executive of General Motors, one of the ways in which you uh, attack the U.S. labor force, the domestic enemy, is by shifting uh, production to high repression areas like, say, Mexico or Thailand. Now Eastern Europe is open. Uh, uh, General Motors is closing 21 plants in uh, North America, but it's opening a huge plant, a $700 million high-tech plant, in an area of East Germany where there's over 40% unemployment and where I'm now quoting the London Financial Times, the world's leading financial journal, where they won't have to be concerned about pampered West European workers, you know, who want high wages and vacations and all this nonsense. Uh, the head of uh, Daimler-Benz made, made the same warning last spring uh, when there was a big strike wave. He said, keep that stuff up and we'll shift production elsewhere, including Russia. Uh, so that offers another means, as the third world does altogether, to kind of institute a third world structure back in the rich domestic societies. And bear in mind that that's a corollary to the globalization of production and the globalization of finance. If capital can flow freely, uh, you're going to find production moving to the most high repression, low wage areas and that means that the third world model, this kind of two-tiered model with superfluous people and a sector of wealthy people, uh, that'll extend to the rich societies themselves. You walk through any American city and you can see it. And it'll happen here before too long as well, under current tendencies. Uh, the, there was, in, in the earlier period, what was called the Ford model, Henry Ford model. Uh, Henry, this was a national economy at the time. And Henry Ford understood, first magnate to understand, that you had to provide workers with at least enough of a wage so they could purchase what you produce. Otherwise, you're not going to have a market. Well, that model is kind of declining as the uh, uh, economic system becomes more global. Now you can produce for rich people elsewhere. And they can produce for rich people in your country. Uh, production will be done in areas which are under such high repression that you don't have to worry about wages going up and then there's a flow of people from the countryside to force them down and so on and so forth. Uh, so in the most repressed areas you get your productive labor force. Uh, at home you keep the rich population, which in a rich country like the United States isn't going to be like Brazil. It's not going to be, say, 10% like Brazil. It'll be maybe 40% or something. Uh, and the rest of the population just becomes superfluous. They're useless for wealth production. They're less and less needed for consumption. So therefore, they're useless, because these are the only human values that exist in a state capitalist society. Uh, and then you've got to do something about them. Well, uh, that's, you saw the LA riot, Los Angeles riots. Uh, and in, right in the background of the Los Angeles riots is the fact that this used to be a, a production area. There are empty industrial plants all around Los Angeles. These are superfluous people. Add to that the racism, and you get what you saw there. And it's happening all over. Uh, violence in the ghettos is extraordinary. I mean, the level of murders and you know, attacks in the, in the inner cities is unbelievable. Uh, that's as people get cooped up and they prey, prey on one another. And you keep them from getting out. You know, you can't build walls like El Salvador, but there are a lot of ways of keeping people from getting out into the richer areas. Uh, so they kill each other and they sell drugs and so on. 
if you can't do anything else with them, they get thrown in jail. Uh, there's been an enormous increase in the prison population in the United States in the last 10 years as part of the state policy of internationalizing production, of, uh, build, of converting, re turning resources even more than before towards the super rich, top one or two percent of the population, while the rest of the population declines, natural reflection of this. Uh, so you've got to have more and more people going into prisons. Uh, an another cause for that is the breakdown of social services. So there used to be mental institutions where you could take care of people who were, couldn't handle, couldn't take care of themselves on the streets. Well, they've mostly disappeared. You've got to do something with the people. You can't let them wander around on the streets. So many of them are put in prison. In fact, a recent study showed that about 30% of the state and local prisons in the United States have inmates who are mentally retarded and haven't even been charged with anything. There's just nothing else to do with them. Well, these are ways of uh, you know, controlling the population. The US now has by far the largest, highest per capita prison population in the world. Well, without proceeding, the tendencies, I think, are pretty clear. Uh, the tendencies are towards a world government uh, by the rich, for the rich, uh, with national states uh, mobilizing resources for their own domestically based corporations and banks and controlling the population uh, for the benefits of the transnational corporations that are to rule the world economy. And in this new imperial age that the financial press talks about, and they are slowly developing their own governing institutions as a reflection of these economic realities. Uh, those tendencies are based crucially on the destruction of any meaningful democracy, on destruction of any possibility for the rabble to participate, or in the current period, even to know what's going on, the highest stage of destruction of democracy, when the general public can't even know what decisions are being made because they're totally insulated. Uh, there are counter-tendencies. The crisis of democracy that so concerned elites was very real. There has been a real uh, cultural and moral, uh, uh, tremendous improvement in the cultural and moral level in much of the population. In fact, it's quite dramatic uh, in the last 30 years. It's very striking in the United States, but I think just about everywhere. Uh, that's a counter-tendency and an extremely important one. Uh, it doesn't have any institutional form to speak of, but it's quite broad, widespread and deeply rooted. And which of these two tendencies prevails uh, will determine whether there will be a world in which a decent human being would want to live. aquesta generosa i llarga exposició aquesta generosa i llarga exposició la veritat és que jo 
per protegir-lo, li proposava que no féssim col·loqui, perquè ja havia parlat molt, però ell em diu que sí. I per tant hi haurà col·loqui. El que passa és que serà molt breu, molt breu, i per tant vol dir que els que preguntin, sisplau, que no facin conferència. Els que preguntin, que preguntin, que és el professor Chomsky qui ens agradaria sentir què diu. Per allà hi ha algú que... En quin canal s'ha d'escoltar la traducció? Veiem, primera pregunta, ràpidament, sisplau. M'agradaria preguntar-li al senyor Chomsky, ja que la conferència és democràcia i poder, i resulta que l'economia és un dels poders més importants, que sí, que una de les causes principals, si vostè creu que una de les causes principals del que ha passat a Rússia... Sisplau, enronis com una persona gran, diríem. És a dir, seguit, seguit. Si vostè creu que una de les coses principals del que ha passat a Rússia i del que ha passat i del que passa amb els japonesos a Amèrica, que sembla que s'ho vulguin comprar tot, no pugui ser, per exemple, el petroli de Sibèria, que per desenrotllar-se els xinos el necessitarien, igual que el petroli d'Alaska. Gràcies. Gràcies. At the moment, they're not all that interested in the oil in Siberia. For one thing, there's a big oil glut. There's a big surplus of oil. That's one of the reasons they're trying to keep Iraqi oil off the market. Furthermore, Siberian oil is expensive. It's hard to get oil out of there. You know, it's a horrible climate. There will come a time when they'll care about the oil, undoubtedly. And you can be sure that all the Western oil companies and the Japanese will be in there up to the next. I don't think oil is the particular reason. És només una pregunta per persones, sisplau. En gas, but oil and gas. Oil and gas. Well, you know, Soviet Union was a big gas supplier to the West. Actually, that's been cutting back as part of the general collapse of the system. They've stopped being reliable suppliers to Western Europe. Uh, for one thing, a lot of the gas is getting diverted to local countries like Ukraine. And for another, the whole system's collapsing. Uh, I mean, so the Eastern Europe was kind of stable through the 1980s. In 1989, when it had the uh, IMF rules imposed on it, it started going into free fall, you know, just collapsed. That's true throughout the region, and it's typical. It's undergoing a process of sometimes called Latin Americanization. And sooner or later, sure, the Western powers will try to control those resources as others. But even if the Soviet Union didn't have a drop of oil, the Western policy would have been exactly the same. I mean, Nicaragua didn't have any oil. Cuba doesn't have any oil. It's trying to destroy them. And this is a huge area. Una altra pregunta, sisplau. Professor Chomsky, ens podria 
breument donar el seu punt de vista sobre la guerra del Golf. Well, point number one is that we ought to be careful with terminology. There was no Gulf War. A war is something where there are two sides shooting at each other. And that didn't happen in the Gulf. In fact, the US and Britain would not have entered the Gulf conflict unless they were pretty confident that nobody would shoot back. Uh, the reason for that is that there's very little popular support for intervention. One aspect of the improvement in the cultural climate is that they know there's no support for intervention. They're very aware of that. Uh, so this was a war. It, it was just a slaughter. You know? It was the Gulf slaughter. Uh, and the question is, what was the reason for the Gulf slaughter? The normal reason. Uh, the US and Britain, you know, these two traditional warrior states, uh, they support any gangster around, no matter how awful they are, as long as they are useful for controlling their populations and ensuring what's called stability, meaning profits and so on. So Saddam Hussein was one of those guys. He was doing fine. You know, he's keeping everything quiet. He was uh, providing a big market for Western industry. Uh, uh, he was offering his oil on reasonable terms. They thought he was a fine guy. They liked him. Uh, it didn't matter that he was slaughtering Kurds and torturing dissidents, but it never matters. I mean, it didn't matter for Trujillo, didn't matter for Stalin, as I just mentioned, who's a much bigger killer than Saddam Hussein. In fact, the US was kind of supporting Hitler up until the late 30s, because he was regarded as sort of a barrier against uh, pressure from the laboring classes and, uh, uh, and the Soviet Union, what they called Bolshevism. Uh, the US enthusiastically supported Mussolini from the day of the March on Rome, which was greeted with enormous enthusiasm all through the 30s. Uh, Mussolini was uh, that admirable Italian gentleman, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt called him. And the business community was ecstatic about him and so on. Uh, uh, right now, they're supporting General Suharto of Indonesia, who's one of the major killers in the world. He took power in 1965 as part of the project of insulating Southeast Asia from the Vietnamese virus. And the first act that he carried out was to slaughter about 700,000 people in about four months, uh, an action which incidentally was greeted with enormous applause and enthusiasm throughout the West. I've just written a study of this in which I went through the press. It is unbelievable. They were just ecstatic as the corpses mounted. Uh, uh, and that's the way it always works. But all of these gangsters have a flaw. Sooner or later, they stop obeying orders. You know, sooner or later, they strike out on their own. And they commit the crime of disobedience. At that point, they become radical nationalists. And they have to be wiped out. Uh, Mussolini made that mistake when he joined Hitler. Hitler made that mistake when instead of just repressing the working classes, he tried to expand. Uh, Trujillo, you know, who's another big killer, uh, made that mistake by the 1950s. He was such a crook, he started buying up, interfering with U.S. investments in the Dom Dominican Republic. CIA tried to kill him, and he was shortly assassinated. It just happened with Noriega. I mean, Noriega, who's a very minor thug by these standards, you know, barely detectable. But uh, uh, Noriega was perfectly fine. He was stealing elections. He was torturing dissidents, you know, doing, running drugs. Everything was just fine. 
until about 1986 or so when, you know, he started uh, just going off on his own. You know, he's playing both sides. He refused to participate enthusiastically in the war against Nicaragua. Okay, he had to go. In fact, if you look at the, after Noriega was kidnapped and brought to the United States, he was put on trial. If you look at the charges against him, they were virtually all charges from the period when he was a U.S., he was in the pay of the CIA. You know. Well, that's what happened with Saddam Hussein. He did the wrong thing, got to be destroyed. Uh, but what they want, and now there were opportunities for a negotiated settlement to that war from mid-August right until early January. There were offers coming from Iraq to withdraw under various conditions. By early January, there were virtually no conditions. These offers were being released by high U.S. officials who regarded them, described them as serious and negotiable. Of course, they were never considered, and the press refused to publish them. So the only people who know about them are a couple of fanatics who you know, read crazy journals and things. Uh, but they were real, and the U.S. had no interest in them. They didn't want a diplomatic settlement. They wanted to reassert their force. Uh, the comparative advantage of the United States and Britain in world affairs is primarily violence. They monopolize the resources of violence. And they want, you know, everybody wants the world to run in accord with your own advantages. You try to play your strong card in a card game. Well, in this game, the strong card for the United States and England is violence. So they'd much prefer to see uh, issues settled by violence than by negotiations been true for a long time. They had to get, they had to cut back, they had to punish the disobedient dictator. Uh, they wanted to reassert their control. This region is a U.S. region. Nobody's allowed in. That's been true since 1945. The British are allowed in you know, a little, but that's only because they're regarded as completely servile. They'll do anything you tell them, so they're allowed in. Uh, but uh, nobody else is, you know. Uh, and the U.S. and its British client wanted to resort, resort to control to show the importance of force in the world, to punish the guy who made a mistake in case anybody else gets a funny idea. Uh, and then after the war was over, the so-called war was over, notice that they immediately returned to supporting Saddam Hussein, right? I mean, the, the fighting, so-called, I mean, the slaughter was over in early March. Within about two weeks, they were supporting Saddam Hussein as he destroyed the Shiites in the south and the Kurds in the north. The reason was that the threat of popular democracy is far greater than the threat of Saddam Hussein's power. Uh, 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 in fact, this was described, surprisingly, it was described quite accurately uh, in the New York Times by their chief diplomatic correspondent. That's a technical phrase that means State Department spokesman in the New York Times. You get your leaks from the State Department, you publish them under your own name. That's called Chief Diplomatic Correspondent. Uh, the Chief Diplomatic Correspondent, must have been Thomas Friedman, about mid-April, published a, quite a good article. I mean, I, have, I hate to admit it, but it was quite a good article uh, in which he described U.S. policy. And he said, well, yes, of course, you know, we're, our moral sensibilities are, uh, uh, you know, appalled by Saddam Hussein's crimes. But we recognize that he's contributing to stability. Uh, and he says, the United States wants to get what he called the best of all worlds. 
the best of all worlds would be uh, an iron-fisted ruler who would rule Iraq with an iron fist exactly the way Saddam Hussein did prior to his one mistake, August 2nd, 1990. That would be the best of all worlds. We don't want him, you know, because that's sort of embarrassing, but we want to find a duplicate who can do exactly what he does. Uh, the trouble is that Saddam Hussein is such a efficient killer that he's probably killed off the possible duplicates. <laughs> so they're having a problem. Uh, but that's essentially the policy. And it's entirely understandable, you know. In fact, it's a replica of everything that happens over and over. It's not all that different except in scale from what happened in Panama a couple months earlier. Thank you. Sí. Professor Chomsky. Uh, we are aiming at a common European market, which apparently is uh, going to be something as what you described uh, the, the United States are. What is your idea about that uh, project? Would that be benefit the, the people or what would happen with it? I don't think that one can respond to the question of a common market in an abstract way. It's kind of like freedom of trade. I mean, in principle, freedom of trade could be a good thing. It could be designed in a way which would help people. Uh, on the other hand, if it's designed by the masters, it'll hurt people. And the same is true of the common market. I mean, uh, freeing up inter at least economic interactions among the European societies could, under certain circumstances, be beneficial to them. Under other circumstances, it'll be a technique for centralizing power, marginalizing the population, leveling cultural differences, which means driving everybody down to the zero level, attacking environmental standards, and so on. It simply depends what form it takes. But that depends, again, on the ongoing struggle between people who own the place and everybody else. Can you see any possibility of breaking this power of the mind by the state? Yeah, I think that power is very fragile. Uh, it seems to me that the techniques for controlling people are extremely weak. Uh, for example, it's been this mostly cultural uprising since the 1960s, which has greatly transformed the Western world, has been terribly frightening to elites and they've tried everything to try to stop it and they have totally failed. You know, they've prevented it from taking any institutional form but they can't do anything else. You know, uh, and they know it. And that means that it ought to be possible for people to overcome the isolation and the propaganda and these, after all, relatively weak means of control. You know, television is a form of control but it's not like living in El Salvador where people still do succeed in organizing and fighting, even though they're living against a level of terror that we can't even imagine. So yes, it's possible to do things. Uh, but of course, it takes effort and energy and commitment. It never is easy. It wasn't easy to overcome slavery. Nothing's easy. No. Sí. Uh, última pregunta. Para voy. Right, ¿Ya está? Muy
volia preguntar al professor Chomsky què pensa de la revifalla o del renaixement del nacionalisme que hi ha hagut a Europa. Com cal interpretar-lo? Pot ser una descentralització del poder o són unes èlites que no obtenen el poder i que el volen obtenir-lo? Moltes gràcies. Well, again, I don't think there's a simple answer to that. It's different in different places. Nationalism is a double-edged sword. It can be extremely destructive. It can be a form of cultural and other forms of liberation. Depends what form it takes, and basically it depends under whose control it is, as always. If it's under the control of dominant elites, it'll be murderous. If it's under popular control, it can be quite a positive force. Moltíssimes gràcies. Estic segur que tots els aquí presents... Lamento que els que estan a les altres sales, que no veiem des d'aquí, ells no han pogut intervenir ni fer preguntes, que tinguin comprensió per la dificultat. Estic segur que tots els que hem tingut el goig 